There we go. Thank you. Well, welcome everyone. I'm very excited to uh, welcome you to our first um, uh, webinar um, that Digni and, uh, and Leda HR are offering. Um, Kristen and I are thrilled uh, to be able to have this conversation um, with you because it's something that we feel is a really necessary conversation um, to have. So Kristen and I are gonna introduce ourselves now. Kristen, do you wanna take it away? Sure. And Malika, I'll get you to just admit, there we go. <clears throat> to start, uh, Liz and I just wanna take a moment to acknowledge that uh, we are gathered here on the traditional and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. Uh, that's largely comprised of the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Uh, and I am here in Maple Ridge, which is the land of the Cape Sea. And, um, you know, Indigenous elders have traditionally been the custodians of this land, and, and we just wanted to express our gratitude. So Liz and I are going to share uh, the, the duties here today. Um, and Liz, do you want to uh, explain or introduce yourself first? Yeah, so I'm Elizabeth Cook. I'm the um, co-founder and CEO of Digni Technologies. And what we do at Digni is um, we do a lot of uh, work in consultation, but we have created the software to help companies to measure diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Um, so we do that by providing uh, confidential and anonymized um, surveys to the folks to actually understand who works in a workplace uh, and who is missing. Uh, in terms of looking, you know, at benchmarking and reflecting the communities that we that we live and work in, uh, and then we make recommendations around that. And we also have the pleasure of working um, with with uh, a lot of fabulous people. But the top of the pile at the moment is uh, is Leda HR, uh, in being able to um, to complement each other's uh, services and and work um, with clients together. So I'm very pleased to be able to be here. I have a, um, a background in law. Uh, and I, I teach employment law at UBC. So I'm looking forward to sharing some of those insights uh, with you guys today, as well as just the elements around diversity and inclusion. And I'm Kristen Bauer. Um, I am the one of the founding partners in Leda HR with my uh, consulting partner and friend, Annika Lofstrand. Uh, we both have over 20 years of HR experience with really uh, spanning the full employee life cycle. So everything from hiring, attraction, recruitment, and selection to, unfortunately, occasionally termination. Uh, but the last 10 years, really, Annika and I have been focused on, um, even before we were calling this diversity, equity, and inclusion, we were really focused on what is belonging, what is inclusion. And, uh, and that's been incredibly rewarding for us. So we've been consulting now together for four years. Uh, we do a lot of work in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy design, intercultural competency, unconscious bias training, uh, mental health awareness and advocacy. Uh, and we do work uh, supporting organizations to really create and foster psychologically safe and healthy workplaces, really in alignment with the national standard for psychological health and safety. Um, I uh, mostly have gone to the School of Hard Knocks, but I've also uh, gone to BCIT to study HR, and I have an award of achievement in diversity and inclusion from UBC. And, uh, and I will say that, uh, you know, Annika and I are very focused on working with uh, women in particular, and so whenever we can support other women and to collaborate, um, we're, we're looking for great 
uh, amazing, smart, like-minded people to do so. And, and that's why we love working with Elizabeth. So we're here um, today and, and we have also a, a guest appearance by uh, Jude. <laughs> Interesting when we're talking about reproductive rights uh, today that we have a, a, a brand new little human that will be joining us. He will. Hopefully he'll be uh, silently joining us, um, but you never know. <laughs> That's all right. Listen, he can have his voice heard, right? <laughs> you, may, you may regret that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about why. Why are we even here today? Why are we talking about something that um, we might think, what does this have to do with the workplace? <clears throat> and very likely you've heard this uh, at some point in your career, likely early days in your career, you know, there are some things you just don't talk about in the workplace. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion. And oh my gosh, like don't talk about your salary. You know, we don't want other people to know what you're making. Um, but really since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, she was that a month ago or so, um, you know, I've had so many conversations with people, colleagues, friends, all this is not, not just something that impacts women with their quotes because Liz is going to talk a little bit about that language and, and terminology. Um, but this is something that is has really deeply touched so many people. Um, and women who may not have shared their own abortion story a few years ago, they are now. You know, I went for lunch with a colleague and uh, a few weeks ago and she just came right out with it. Like this is at this is this is something that is um, at the surface for so many people. Uh, another colleague of mine said that she was in a meeting recently, and uh, the person in the meeting, <laughs> in the workplace, just said, "I'm just really upset today because of this." Wow! And she shared her abortion story and the impact of Roe v. Wade. So you know, this is a moment in history um, that, in many ways, is it's a tipping point that's very similar to what we saw with the Me Too movement and the Harvey Weinstein um, uh, allegations, which of course we know now to be true. And absolutely, I believe this to be true. It's nobody's business what somebody chooses to do with their body. So, you know, this is not um, a conversation necessarily about why somebody might seek an abortion. And if that is morally wrong or right, that's not what this conversation is about. But we need to acknowledge that people are seeking them. And it's easy for us in Canada to, and I know we do this a lot, where we look to the South and say, well, we're we're better. We, you know, things are better in Canada. And, you know, certainly things are better in terms of healthcare in general in Canada and women's reproductive rights. Um, and abortions are available here widely. The reality is, is it's not always so easy to seek the reproductive health care that we need. And things like if you live rurally, if you experience language barriers um, or cultural barriers, it can be really difficult to get the care that you need. And this has reproduction, pretty me, repercussions uh, for women, for our communities, and yes, absolutely our workplaces. And, and really, when one group's rights begin to erode, other diversity groups take note. They're watching. They're listening. What might be next? The end of uh, same sex or intercultural marriage? You know, it can be a really slippery slope and it has implications for the workplace that we will explore a little bit later. Thanks, Kristen. I just wanted to add, um, you know, for me, this, this conversation is simultaneously really basic and really complex. 
it's basic because I believe, you know, in that we all have the right to make informed decisions um, about our bodies and have access to medical professionals to do that. But it's quite complex because of the politicization um, of the issue. And that's what we're seeing played out in the States. Um, the States had the case Roe v. Wade, which found that there was a constitutional right to access abortion. And then there's been different limits and conversation around at what point you can do that, what has to happen for a woman to have access um, to that, um, to, to those services. And I'm, I'm using the term woman here just because that's what we used in the case law at the time or to discuss how broad that term actually <clears throat> needs to be. Um, but what, we're, what we need to remember as well is that you know, in, in Canada, um, that is different, but the things that happen both in Canada and in the States, they, they do impact, um, you know, how it is that, that we live and work. And when we talk about the rights that affect us, it impacts us in a lot of different ways. It impacts us personally and professionally because it impacts all of the people within our community to varying different degrees. You know, if this were just a conversation about abortion, we would talk about, you know, this isn't about somebody that just gets pregnant by accident um, or chooses not to be pregnant. This is also about people that have medical complications and life complications and choose not to access um, those services. But that's not what this conversation is. This is really about the erosion of rights and what that means and the impact that that can have um, in our workplace, because we can see it in a lot of different ways, right? We can see it in how we we might lose talent about how we you know, can have a decrease in diversity because these kind of laws can impact who can join the workforce in a reasonable way, who feels comfortable sharing things in a reasonable way. And that decreases the inclusion that we see in the workplace. And frankly, it also stifles a lot of creativity that we have. It can have a chilling effect on how we work and what we share and, and, and how we're doing that. So when we look at what it is that we're, that we're talking about, um, we're, we're really talking about um, rights and we're looking at what an erosion of rights looks like. Um, this can be a really traumatizing conversation for people to have. Um, you know, the, the, and I think we need to just be really mindful that, that it, can, it is a very challenging um, area for people to, to discuss, but we do need to take a step back and recognize that we're talking broadly about human rights and rights that are afforded to people to make decisions about what kind of medical services they can access. Um, and, and that's just what it is. In Canada, much like Kristen just mentioned, we don't have a constitutionally entrenched right to access abortion. Um, we, we have the right to access abortion under the Canadian Health Act. And, and broadly, we, we do have you know pretty lenient um, compared to other jurisdictions access to abortion. The challenges that we have here are um, in terms of urban um, and regional areas and who can physically access um, some of those services. And that varies a lot by province and territory, which is an issue that you know, merits discussion in and of itself. Um, and when we really think about what it is that we're talking about, we're, we're not talking about you know, that, that idea of, of women's rights and, and people for pregnancy. You flip to the next slide, please, because um, there's been some issue around the language um, that we that we use, and I, I've heard this actually in a couple of different places. Um, I've, it, we saw it on uh, Dr. Um, Kiara Bridges uh, was was testifying um, uh, in in the states, and uh, and uh, a senator who uh, doesn't merit name recognition um, really challenged. Um, how she was describing uh, people with the capacity for pregnancy rather than just using the term women. Um, and it's a really interesting piece. That particular person was doing it just to get a lot of views on Twitter and to cause a, a little bit of drama for his own political gain, which is a 
fabulous example of the over-politicization of something as simple as in using inclusive language. Um, but it does raise an interesting issue that we need to be aware of. We're in the process of, uh, in, in the broader society of, of recognizing various gender identities and how people choose to identify themselves, both in their names, in their pronouns, and in their presentation. And we need to be mindful that we want to be inclusive, but being inclusive doesn't mean we have to have sterilized language or quarantine certain words. We don't want to lose, you know, some of the, the historical impact um, that has carried us through, right? We saw this with Stonewall, um, you know, in, in, in the States and getting a lot of, you know, rights for the LGBTQ community. That was the majority of those folks were, were, were trans folks uh, and black trans folks that fought for that and got rights for everybody else. I and mean, we don't want to lose you know, the origin of this. So when we talk about having you know, uh, the, the women's movement and women's rights, there's some historical references there that we want to make sure that we retain in the language that we use. Um, so we need to recognize that the, like, the history of women and of pregnant women, it is a significant thing. Women have historically been the victim of gender-based discrimination and our identities are really often shaped by those experiences and we don't wanna lose that. And, and a lot of folks that I've spoken to recently have been really concerned about, you know, if we are talking about abortion and we take the word women out of that, like we're losing a lot, we're losing something as individuals and as a collective of having a voice um, be heard. Um, but the challenge that we're faced with now in, in, in determining the language that we use is that we're, we're talking about a body that has been both celebrated and punished in a variety of different ways, right? Living in a body that a government and judicial systems feel that they have the right to control is something that's very challenging for the majority of people that identify as women and for a smaller minority of people who you know, may have been born with a uterus that identify in a different manner, right? What we should be talking about is the care and dignity that we afford to people because that's what we're losing and the reality is that you know the, the law in the us um it's affecting anybody that has a uterus nobody is checking your pronouns your uterus and what you're doing with it that's what those laws um, you know are are, are are changing um there's a there's a um a feminist a moral uh, a feminist moral philosopher by the name of kate mann that she wrote that uh, abortion bans are misogynistic because they target and primarily victimize, victimize women who are seen as no longer fulfilling their, their rightful reproductive and social roles as mothers. And in particular, uh, as caregivers in general, in general, this is beyond ironic that I'm juggling a little person while we're doing this. Uh, but she, what, what she ended up saying you know, at, at the end of a piece on this is that when what she's talking about is who's potentially affected by abortion bans. So we're talking about people who can get pregnant. So I think the two important things to remember when we're looking at the language here is that context is really important and knowing your audience is really important because um, that can really affect how it is that we're describing things, right? Like there's... Um, uh, there was an article in the Washington Post uh, recently that said, you know, the language that we use should be a language of addition, not a language of subtraction. So we need to think about that when we think about how we want to phrase things, um, you know, if it's in a, in a work context, if you're looking at how you describe people or if we're having this particular conversation. Um, and it really should be adding 
people to the universal experience of pregnancy that really does transcend beyond um, uh, beyond you know uh, generations and 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 does include pregnant women um, and other pregnant people. Um, so it's we can say that we can say pregnant women and other pregnant people uh, in, in in how it is that we uh, that we address things. But I think remembering the context um, that you're discussing these issues with and looking at um, who your audience is and then you know making sure that our, we're not sterilizing our language. We're, we're in, adding people. It's a, it's a language of addition, not a language of subtraction. I love that. A language of addition, not subtraction. I think that's going to be my takeaway here today. <laughs> um, thanks, Liz. Yeah, it's, um, you know, when we, when we first started talking about this, Elizabeth and I, um, you know, I, well, and I certainly was greatly impacted by uh, the Roe v. Wade um, situation and I felt actually a, a real pr primal physical reaction to it. Um, it was incredibly upsetting to me, and uh, and and I realized that um, you know there's so much that I don't know about this issue. I mean, I feel strongly about it, but I also think it's really important to be curious and to learn what you can. And I remembered that I had purchased this book, the Turnaway Study. A couple of years ago, and um, and and it's fascinating. So I grabbed it off of um, my bookshelf. And you know, it's a good book because I've got a whole bunch of little markers in here and tons of stuff highlighted. And so we wanted to share a little bit about this study uh, because it is significant. It's really the only one of its kind. It is based in the U.S., but of course, we know that there are um, you know uh, comparisons to Canada. And so we wanted to share a little bit of information from the study. So this was conducted at the University of California in San Francisco. It was a 10-year study. Uh, it included 1,000 women from clinics in 21 of the states in the U.S. And, uh, you know, to, uh, on a note of how well the study was um, crafted, uh, you know, it has produced 50 peer-reviewed papers in top medical and social science journals. So it is really a well-respected study. Um, women who received abortions and women who were denied abortions were similar at the time they sought abortions. So that was that was um, a bit of the um, uh, uh, the starting point. Their lives diverged after in ways that were directly attributed to to whether they received an abortion or not. So what they found through this study, and there's a lot, uh, you can actually, um, Malika's put a, a link in the, the chat. There's a lot of information about this particular study on the internet you can find. Uh, but I'm just gonna really highlight the economic hardship piece because uh, this absolutely has a huge impact on our communities, our society, and our workplaces as well. So denying a woman an abortion creates economic hardship and insecurity that lasts for years. Some examples of this are uh, women who were turned away and went on to give birth experienced an increase in household poverty lasting four years relative to those who received an abortion. Years after an abortion denial, women were more likely to not have enough money to cover basic living expenses like food, housing, and transportation. Being denied an abortion lowered a woman's credit score, increased a woman's amount of debt, 
and increase the number of their negative financial records, such as bankruptcies and evictions. And by five years, women denied abortions were more likely to be raising children alone, so without family members or male partners. On the flip side, uh, the study found that women who received a wanted abortion are more financially stable, set more ambitious goals, raise children under more stable conditions, and are more likely to have wanted children later. So obviously, this is all a lot of stuff for women to deal with. Um, and as experience through the pandemic, the line between personal life and work life has really been forever blurred. We, we can't separate the two any longer. So let's talk a little bit now about mental health. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, it's, it's a very common belief. A lot of times people think if you are experiencing depression or anxiety, that something must have happened. There was one trigger. And the reality is that it's actually a much more complex thing. So, you know, these are some of the things that impact and determine if we're mentally healthy or mentally unwell. So 15% is biology. So genetics. Um, uh, you could have a predisposition to something, just like some people have a predisposition to cancer. Um, healthcare, so things like your access to healthcare, the healthcare system, wait times. Uh, a lot of this stuff, obviously, we're thinking a lot about right now because it's all in the news about you know the the pandemic and the the ripple effect that's having on society and our healthcare. Um, but again, it goes back to what uh, Liz and I were saying about abortion and reproductive health care availability in Canada. Depending on where you live, you may not have easy access to the services that you need. Uh, things like environment. So, you know, literally our physical environment, you know, do we have uh, access to uh, green spaces? And the, the big one here is your life. So 50% is your life and things like your income your socioeconomic status, your gender, um, you know, uh, employment and working conditions. Can you work if you're, if you, um, for example, if you can't access um, childcare and, and you're the uh, single mother, um, it, it's, it's more likely that you're going to be the one who, um, you know, is, is, is paying the price for that. So there's a lot of things that go into how we determine our mental health. Um, and, you know, let's talk a little bit about how this directly, you know, what did the study find? How does this directly impact our mental health? Um, so we'll go to the next slide, please, Malika. So this is what the study found. In the short run, women denied abortions have worse mental health higher anxiety and lower self-esteem than women who receive an abortion. There are no long-term differences between women who receive and women who are denied an abortion in depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, self-esteem, life satisfaction, drug abuse, or alcohol use. And we, when we consider those things that I mentioned earlier um, about the impact on women who were denied an abortion, we can see how these things can of mental illness, income, socioeconomic, socioeconomic status, belonging, and access to health care. So 
how does this all connect to the workplace? I think it's obvious we can see some of these connections already. Um, but, you know, uh, this is, and this is something that I like to say a lot when I'm working with my clients, uh, in particular, HR and people managers, is that guess what? You don't have to have all the answers. I remember when I first started in HR, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to have all the answers for my clients. And I pretty quickly realized that, um, first of all, when we're dealing with people, nothing is ever um, simple. Uh, it's not black or white. It's often shades of gray. And so actually what can be really valuable, much more valuable than having all the answers, is to have the ability to ask good questions and really listen to the answers. Listen to what that other person is telling you. Um, so, for example, when putting together or reviewing an existing benefits offering or putting together some programs for employees, you need to go straight to the expert. Go to your employees. So let's talk a little bit now. We'll go to the next slide about how you can uh, learn and gather important insights from your employees. Yeah, thanks. This is a big piece of what we do at Dignity is, is looking at uh, who your employees are, um, so surveying them. So you know, there's, there's a lot that we can gather just in working with people, but a lot of the information about, you know, where somebody uh, is in their life and, and, and where they fit in terms of their diversity, because um, you know, no two people are exactly the same, uh, is a really important thing to understand. Um, it's very important to find out who your employees are um, and, and who works for you. It's equally as important to find out who's not working for you uh, and what the reasons for them not uh, not being there are. You know, we're, we're in a moment now that you know, we see so many clients wanting to hire more in, in, in certain equity groups, but not being able to fulfill, you know, the, those, those numbers or they hire people, um, but then they, but then they leave and they see a higher level of staff turnover. So understanding, you know, not just who's in your workplace, but who's not in your workplace, um, as well as, uh, you know, understanding what their experience is, is really important because there's, it's one thing to try and get, you know, all of your numbers to identify, you know, that you're reflecting the community or that you're meeting workforce availability numbers. Um, it's, an, it's another to have an inclusive workplace where everybody feels like they do have that sense of belonging and can work really well together so that you can capitalize on the business case for, for DEI uh, in, in, in terms of, um, you know, looking at that return on your investment uh, of, of, of having an inclusive workplace. Um, so you need to do that. So that's, so that really is looking, you know, at collecting some demographic data and then add, and also one of the things that we do um, a, a lot of me is, is looking at the intersectional data points. And sometimes, you know, when we've already alluded to a few different groups that might identify, you know, uh, as, as people that are pregnant, but it, it might not just be women, you might be talking about um, trans folks, you might be talking about, um, you know, people that are experiencing a mental illness or a disability at the same time. Uh, as well, we have to be careful not to silo people into only being able to sort of tick one box uh, as, a, as a diversity metric. We need to be more, more broad um, than that. And doing that with a third party provider can be really helpful um, because it's quite arduous to have to actually collect all of that data and keep it secure. Um, it's another kettle of fish to make sure that everybody actually responds to the surveys. Often uh, for reasons that you may already guess, uh, people don't want to tell their employers some of that private uh, in information that they have, but they want their employers to know that private information so that they can get the support that they need in the workplace. And, you know, a third party provider, you know, um, can provide that, that bridge 
um, to, to help you to, to create the, the recommendations um, that you need. And then being able to, you know, like, um, uh, like Kristen had just, uh, had just said, you know, being able to actually um, have a good sense of, um, you know, how, what are, do your employer, employees need and what do they want? Being able to, you know, offer some, some surveying um, and pieces around that um, can, be, uh, can be a really helpful um, piece as well. Thanks. Great, and then the next um, the next one is uh, <laughs> arguably I would say the scary one. <laughs> a lot of a lot of employers don't necessarily want to do this. Like, what a, um, a wild idea to actually talk to your employees. Um, and, and there's reasons why. You know, it's will you open up a whole can of worms? Will there be all of these things that come out of the woodwork that? Um, you know, how do you deal with, is there legal liability? What's, what do you do? Um, uh, but really, um, you know, creating an environment where people can talk about what is going on in the world or impacting them personally is often what a person needs to feel a sense of inclusion and belonging in the workplace. Uh, and sometimes when we share and when we say, you know, I'm feeling this, somebody else will say, yeah, you know what, me too. Um, you know, I, I'm feeling the same way. And so that's an important, uh, an important step into creating um, a sense of belonging and inclusion in the workplace. Uh, I recently read this and I am going to paraphrase it, but uh, somewhere on social media, a black woman said, um, said this, and I found it to be really, really powerful and a, and a bit of an aha moment for me as a, as a white woman. And she said this, when racism and social injustice happens in the world, I can't leave that outside of work. To work, I am still a black woman. And, and I thought, um, yeah, of course. Like we can't, whatever, whatever your your skin is, you know, whether it's your skin color, your sexuality, your gender, um, disability, uh, whatever that is, we can't just take that off like a jacket and hang it up and then go about our work. Um, those days of just keep your personal life at home, don't bring it to the workplace. Those are long, long gone. Um, and here's the thing, you know, our clients, our customers, our external stakeholders, they're also experiencing the world. Uh, so this is stuff that we can't, um, we can't just leave. So you can provide opportunities for your employees to speak, you know, to share their opinion um, and their thoughts, their beliefs, their experiences. You can do this in town halls, one-to-one um, -one meetings if you're a people leader. Uh, team meetings, or facilitated focus groups and dialogue sessions. You know, after um, the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, I should say, um, you know, Annika, my consulting partner, and I started to get, uh, you know, requests from clients to say, can you just come facilitate a dialogue session? We don't need you to be a subject matter expert. And by the way, of course, we're not. As two white women, we would certainly never um, speak on behalf of anyone of color. Uh, but to be able to hold that space for people to have a conversation and just to share how they're feeling can be a really powerful thing. Um, and if you really want to understand your employees, who they are um, and what they need, what they want to see in the workplace, uh, a focus group with an external third party can be a really, um, a really, well, I would say a somewhat safe environment. I can't determine if it's safe for somebody else, but it does provide a neutral environment uh, for people to, to speak about, about issues that are impacting them in the world, but also within the workplace. 
Uh, and the other thing that I would uh, put a plug in for, uh, you know, because this is, I know is a, a big thing for uh, both Annika and I at Laid HR, but also with Digni um, and, and Liz is, you know, you can do this also very confidentially as part of pulse surveys uh, and, and use those things to assel, assess your needs and initiatives as well. Yeah. And one of the things I think to remember when you're engaging employees like this is, you know, you, you kind of always want to have in your background, in, in the background, how are you going to be accountable and how are you going to be transparent? Um, because if you open the door to employees to disclose information to you and to share their experiences and their feelings and talk about their needs, you need to be able to be frank about what you're going to do with that at the end. Because one of the mm -hmm. most deflating things that, that, employee, that, I, that I've seen employers do is get employees excited about sharing information um, and, and that sense of hope and want to see things change or shift in a certain direction and then seeing it fall flat. It's very, that's a very difficult thing to come back from. So, you know, being able to be really clear, like you're talking to your employees, this is, you know, the conversation that we want to have. And, you know, this is what we think the next step will be, or this is what we're going to do with that information. Um, and this is what you can anticipate as an outcome and being really transparent about that process. Because sometimes it's really hard. You might get a lot of information from employees and it might be like, well, this is something that actually has you know, it, it's going to require a cultural shift. Like we're talking about a lot of changes that need to take place. That's going to take us a long time um, to do. So we need to be honest about that, that there's, you know, it's not something that we can turn around in a quarter. This is something that we're going to have to work on, you know, for a long period of time, or this is something that needs a bigger budget. So we're going to have to, you know, shift things around in, in, in a certain way. Um, but those are things that you, that you want to be considering is, is how you're going to be accountable and transparent to your employees when they share that information with you. Boy, I echo that. You know, it's it's we hear this a lot from, um, you know, long term, long tenured employees in organizations that say, you know what, I have seen this. Uh, this organization's called it a million different things over the years. They ask for our feedback and then they don't do anything with it. So you can um, really disengage and turn people off. Um, and then the other thing to be really aware of too is that uh, particularly if um, a major incident has happened. So let's say, for example, um, again, the murder of George Floyd, um, employees and, and, and people of color um, were feeling very raw and, and were feeling exhausted because, you know, their white friends or their white colleagues kept going to them saying, are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? Hey, can you now educate me on what it means to be um, a, a Black person? You know, that is all, all very exhausting for people too. So um, there's a lot to be aware of, certainly, in setting the tone and, and uh, uh, creating an environment where it is actually safe, uh, psychologically safe and healthy for people to have these confirmation or uh, conversations, pardon me. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go to the next slide and we'll talk just a little bit about uh, some elements to foster a culture of inclusion, uh, because honestly, you can't, to, to Elizabeth's point, you can't go from zero to 60. You can't just say, okay, it's a safe environment now, talk. <laughs> yeah, it, it does take a little bit of uh, intentionality. Uh, you know, one of the things that I get asked frequently uh, by people uh, in particular around having a conversation about mental health, if they think a, uh, an employee is, is struggling, they will say to me, how do I talk to them? I say, well, don't wait until you think they're struggling. You know, you have to normalize the conversation around mental health. You also have to normalize the conversation 
equity, inclusion, belonging. You have to talk about this all the time, not just when something really horrible happens in the world. Um, because what you do is you set the tone of, yeah, this is our environment. It's okay to talk about this stuff here. Uh, we welcome it. So, you know, one of the things in particular, if you're a leader, is you need to model the behaviors that you're encouraging. Um, and, and so some of these behaviors, whether you're a leader or not, um, I, I think are really important because we all have skin in the game. We are all accountable for creating uh, workplace cultures that are inclusive and that really, really foster um, a sense of belonging and absolutely prioritize equity. So be authentic and vulnerable. Now the, the V word here, vulnerable, <laughs> sense shivers through many people. I know Annika and I have had lots of conversations, particularly with leaders about this topic, where they struggle with, oh my gosh, how vulnerable should I be? How authentic should I be? And so certainly that's something that we all need to figure out for ourselves, what our comfort level is. Um, but I do know that when we are authentic and vulnerable, we are better able to connect with other people and other people are better able to connect with us. Lean into those hard conversations. Um, we don't like hard conversations because guess what? They're hard. They're uncomfortable. But, um, you know, I would argue that when we're a little uncomfortable, that's when we grow. So, you know, don't avoid those hard conversations. You may also just be um, extending a lifeline to somebody that needs it when you don't even realize it. Share different perspectives. You know, this is what diversity is. If we actually create environments that are uh, inclusive and safe for in interpersonal risk-taking, um, we create an environment where it's okay. It's actually celebrated to share different perspectives. And it's okay to say, you know what? Like this big thing's happening in the world right now. Can we talk about it? Let's have a dialogue. It's not a debate. We're going to have a dialogue, which means that Elizabeth, your opinion is valid, valid, your experience is valid, so is mine. I'm a different person, maybe I have a different perspective. And then the, the fourth one really is pretty uh, specific to workplaces. You know, this is something that we hear a lot in our consulting work is, you know, um, how do I get people to actually get on board with this idea? Well, you know, you have to really consider if you're inviting people into the conversation, so if you're creating an environment where people actually feel safe to be curious or to share a different perspective, or are you creating an environment where you're just going to call people out and make them feel bad and shameful and guilty? Because one approach is actually going to create conversation and help people to better understand each other. The other approach, deepen your divide. So certainly there is a time and place for calling people out. Sometimes that needs to happen. But when you are really trying to create opportunities for discussion about really hard things, there's really no place for shame or guilt. I, I think those are those are all really great, um, great points. And I think what they 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 you know speak to to me a lot is you know a, a culture of inclusion is not always something that happens organically. Um, yeah. For a variety of different reasons, it's something that we need uh, to skillfully um, foster in the workplace. Because um, there's a few other things that happen in the workplace, right? We have um, we have legislation around bullying and harassment and discrimination in the workplace that we need to be mindful of. Very aware of creating psychologically safe workplaces, and those are really difficult things um, sometimes to execute. They can be everything's really easy until all of a sudden it's not, um, and that that's a time where you know pulling in some expertise 
to help you to manage those things can be a really helpful thing. You know, like leaning into hard conversations is something that you want to be sure that you're equipped to do. Uh, and there's a lot of different resources that are available um, to help that to have to take place in the workplace so that it's it's constructive. You know, we're not just opening up a huge conversation in, in, in talking about, you know, abortion at work or about particular challenges or, or world events without understanding the, the boundaries and, and the, the, the manner in which you're, you're best served to facilitate that conversation in the workplace. Because you are, you know, we're trying to make sure that every individual and, and as an employer, making sure that every individual has a psychologically safe workplace, free from bullying and harassment and discrimination. And doing that, you, you need to consider everybody's um, experience. Uh, so there is some forethought that, that and, and some strategy, frankly, that should go into looking at creating that culture of inclusion, um, mostly so that you know where some of your gaps are. If you know that a particular topic is really difficult, then you might address it in a different way, um, you know, than you would something that, you know, individuals in their own workplace have. And then having boundaries and knowing, you know, like, when a conversation is going down a road that's unproductive, um, everybody understands what the ground rules are for ending that conversation and coming back to that when you're more equipped to have it. Um, just, just some other things to, to consider in that, in that element. Yeah, and I think what I would add to that too is um, you're reminding me of a conversation that, um, uh, that we had with, with a colleague recently about um, women in general in the workplace when it comes to things like uh, well, let's just talk about pregnancy for a minute, you know, without getting into a big thing here, but um, some people can't get pregnant. Some people have lost pregnancies through miscarriage or abortion um, and, and things that can happen in the workplace can be triggering, you know, like that baby shower that's happening in the lunchroom. Um, you know, for, for those who maybe have lost a child or um, have, have experienced trauma. Um, these things that we, that don't always seem obvious to us can have an, an impact psychologically on, on our colleagues. And so it's just, I think, just being um, aware that everybody is going through uh, different things that we may not be aware of. We're, we're likely not aware of these things. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the next slide, please, Malika. So I think we just wanted to um, raise uh, some some areas where you could really, you know, uh, apply an inclusion lens in the workplace. Uh, do you have policies for maternity, paternity, uh, parental leaves? Are they inclusive of all genders? You know, it's um, one of the things that Anna and I do a lot of is reviewing policies and procedures. And there's always opportunity to um, update language, in particular around gender, for sure. Um, how supportive or not are you for those who are going on a leave while they're on a leave and while they're returning from a leave? Um, do you provide a benefits flex spending account that actually takes into account, um, you know, all genders and all needs? Um, do you provide flexible work? And, and I think a big one here is, you know, certainly when we talk about the ec economic impact on women, um, whether they've accessed an abortion or not. And the reality is, is that women are still underpaid in Canada. And, and so until, by the way, until that we have um, something such as gender um, equity and compensation, we don't have equality. So, um, you know, really reviewing your compensation and your benefits offerings 
by gender and intersectionality for equity is important. And I will mention also too that for um, you know men who take a paternity leave, that is often still, even though it's available, it is often still looked down upon. And I remember um, a director a few years ago who took a year off for paternity leave and uh, he said it impacted his career. And he ended up leaving that organization as a result. So when we consider something like the great resignation, which by the way, are we all tired of hearing about yet? Um, you know, how we support our employees through significant um, life events is crucial. Absolutely. If somebody doesn't feel supported, they will leave. They have options. I think something that I would like to add to this is that I've often, um, in working with you know some some large companies um, over the years, depending on who you ask, some people in an organization know about these things and others don't. So making sure that everybody is aware. I've worked with organizations that oh well, we're actually not doing really well for maternity benefits. You know, like the, the, our environment, the way that we you know provide um, you know salary increases and compensation package increases depends on you know like amount of service. And when women leave for a maternity leave, they miss that gap. But then I speak to the person in HR and the person in finance, and they figured out their own little workaround for it. So that when somebody takes a mat leave, they figure out a way to make sure that that person you know, still has um, service so that they don't miss those pay uh, in increases in their career because they've had to take um, time out. So sometimes we have workarounds internally because we have allies and advocates internally that have found ways to do their jobs differently uh, and in a way that's more inclusive for everyone but it hasn't been communicated equally to everybody and everybody doesn't actually know that that's happening. Um, so they think that there's problems when in fact, there's just some unofficial solutions that are already in place. So if you look at this list and you're like, oh, well, we take all of those boxes, you know, my challenge would be like, does everybody know that you do that? Um, you know, not only are there areas that you can improve, but is everybody aware of that, of what they actually have access to, you know, do, um, you know, uh, other, you know, partners um, that either, you know, identify as fathers or as non-binary folks that identifies as other new parents that are like a non-birthing or um, a, a, not what, yeah, essentially a non-birthing parent. Do they know what they have access to? And is that something that's, you know, that is supported broadly rather than just from one individual that actually grants you that access? I think, I think that that can often be something to look at as well. Okay. So, um, this is your inclusion superpower. <laughs> Annika and I say this all the time, um, all the time. Choosing curiosity over judgment is a game changer. Absolutely. When we are curious, when we set aside our judgment and our pre-existing beliefs to really listen, like absolutely, truly listen, we can better understand each other. And this is absolutely vital to creating cultures and communities of belonging. Uh, this is how we we build bridges. This is how we um, lessen the divide, in particular in uh, a time and place in history where it feels like that divide is huge. Yeah, I I, I echo that. I think curiosity is one of the one of the most important um, uh, skills that we can um, develop. And, and I think with that, you know, we don't we don't have to be curious, you know, without boundaries. We can have boundaries for that, and looking at how we're curious personally and professionally, um, and especially around like how we have challenging conversations. Um, looking at that, so 
you know, allow yourself to be curious and allow yourself to be strategic in that approach because it can be really overwhelming, um, you know, if you try to fix everything all at once that you want to be mindful of, of how you go about doing that and how you communicate um, all of certainly how you, you know, continue to meet all of your obligations as an employer as well, um, you know, so that you're not exposing yourself to uh, any kind of um, liability. Um, and I think this is... Uh, a really good point. Uh, I think we, we have a, a resource slide that we're going to share. Um, but before I open it up to questions and comments, uh, I just want to say a little official ending of the webinar because we're not going to record the questions and comments piece, um, which is not my practice to do that. So I wanted to thank everyone for taking part in the webinar. Uh, and if you're interested in the slides or furthering the conversation, please just pop your email in the chat. There's also a link that, that will be shared in the chat uh, to book an appointment to have a further conversation. I think we've I've allocated some calendar time um, in there as well. Um, so Malika, if you could uh, stop the recording and then 